Have you hit a random at the time? What? No, it's fine. I always just scrub and look for when you start talking. It's very easy to see. Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. We're live here uh, on our office HQ that we have now stolen and established. That's right. Uh, yeah, and I'm here with the co-host slash guest, Nathan, who's always here. Yeah, I just keep showing up. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to mention this right off the bat. So the previous episode, I started up by saying like, oh, you can't even hear the fan. Maybe that was true in the previous, previous recording. All you could hear was the fan in oh the last God. episode. So I'm assuming it's the same on this one. But uh, yeah, I felt rather foolish listening back to it. And all you could hear was the fan in the background. It's definitely there, but that's how you know that we are at HQ. Yeah, and honestly, like if it's a consistent fan, then you should, your brain should get, get yes, you know. Yeah, pretty quickly my brain tuned it out, which I think is probably what happened with the previous previous as well. Mm-hmm. But no, it was super obvious as I'm talking, as I'm listening to myself talk about how you can't hear the fan. All I can hear at that point is the fan. So, anyway, you listeners, you're not the only ones. Yeah, uh, I could also hear it. I'm not that deaf. Yeah. For now, foreseeable future, whether it's old, new, or, or new, new, new. Uh, that episode will have the fan yes. uh, until we get kicked to a different room. Yeah. But yeah, and, and you know, that's just part of things. That's just life. Life is a bunch of chaos. You can throw that word all around the episode. Great. Um, that's what we're here for. Before we get chaotic, uh-huh. are there any cool, interesting, or frustrating things you'd like to mention? So, uh, I guess it was because my first, it was my first full week back after visiting family, but I just, I just did felt like this week shot by. Uh, I basically like hung out with you and some friends on Saturday, and the rest of the time it was like suddenly, oh, it's time to record again. Spent almost no time thinking about the podcast, uh, but I do have a couple things. They're just going to be the usual things I tend to steal when I have nothing else interesting, which means, of course, it's just talking about the most recent Lex Friedman episode. Oh, uh, with that would be Rocket League. I uh, no, I... no. There's they're they're waiting for the major right now. I think players might already be there. I don't I don't know, but nothing's really happening. Uh, so not a whole lot of updates there. Oh. And I haven't done anything interesting in Rocket Rocket League lately because I was away for a week, and then the guy I play Rocket League with, uh, he is away from his Xbox for a week. So I've just been playing by myself, and that's no fun. Actually, there is an update. Which is that they did the uh, they did a tie in with the World Cup. Wow. And so it's you'll like this. It fits in perfectly to the theme of the episode. Uh, you had to use to unlock all these different boxes that had specific country decals. You had to play a mode in or uh, you had to play five matches in all these different modes to unlock one of those boxes. And you didn't know what was which countries were in the box. So I'm just looking for the Canada one. But you had to play five matches while using a, com- a country decal. So I used Canada, obviously. Yeah. Uh, matched my little Canada flag that I always have on my car. Mm-hmm. But I had to play five ones, five twos, and these were all casual. Five threes and five chaos. Wow. So four wow. v four, which was actually a lot more fun than I expected because nobody plays chaos. So you just had no idea who you were gonna get. It's like a mix of silvers and like champs. So. It's just, it's chaos. Uh, but you also had to play Snow Day, Rumble, uh, 
drop shot, and um, hoops. Wow. So I had to play all those because the second last box the guy unlocked, and at that point I was like, I'm just going to get the last one as well. Uh, but the second last one the guy unlocked had Canada in it. So now I've got a full Canadianized car. Uh, by the time this comes out, I think their event is over. But if you're playing Rocket League, you already know because they've been advertising it uh, all over the uh, home screen. Wow. So anyway, that was fun, and it had chaos involved. Wow. Ladies, if you hear this, this is a man of commitment. Nothing else. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm spoken for <laughs> by a t- tiny, tiny Mexican penguin. <laughs> uh, no one will understand that. Uh, yeah. Um, but she's, she, yeah, she, but she's, she, the joke is she's tiny, and she's, we learned she's approximately the size of a full-grown emperor penguin. Anyway, yes. Uh, you have heard that on past episodes if you're in with the lore. So anyway, what I was actually going to say mm-hmm. is the most recent episode of Lex Friedman, which at the moment is actually one I haven't listened to yet, which is with Todd Howard, and they're talking about Skyrim and Elder Scrolls Six and all that, but I haven't listened to that one yet. The most recent I've listened to is with Guido, the creator of Python. Oh, wow. And so that one was fun. Got me all excited about the uh, interpreter uh, that I've been not working on the last week. Spoiler oh, alert. Yeah. Uh, so that's in my need to do better and did not do betters. Mm. But uh, it's his second time apparently on the show. I don't know that I've listened to his previous uh, episode, but it's good. It starts off a bit slow, admittedly. So uh, if you're put off by it, just stick, stick through it. Maybe skip the first 20 minutes or something if you're... Uh, wanting to get past it because I think they kind of need to get comfortable with the conversation but it is interesting if you like the dynamics of thinking about a language and the pros and cons and they had a big section that I liked or that I found interesting on the move from Python 2 to 3 and how he was like we really underestimated like the state of the development community and what effect it would have and how difficult it would be for people to migrate and these are the decisions that we made that probably could have been backwards compatible. Lex talked about, you know, what would, if you needed to make breaking changes, what would a Python 4 look like? What would be the cause of a breaking change? Uh, They talked about the GIL, the global interpreter lock, and how threading is not real, and concurrency versus parallelism. So a lot of really cool stuff in the episode, but there is some stuff that kind of feels like uh, they're spinning their wheels a little bit. But I think it's just because they're not quite on the same page at the beginning. And then it gets going. Nice. So, yeah. Good also, episode. if you're Lex Friedman regular listener, sitting through the first 20 minutes shouldn't be it's a problem nothing. at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. What's that, 5% of an episode? That's just an ad for a normal <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and the other one, I don't know what everyone's uh, take is on this YouTube channel, but I know it's gotten very popular or m- much more well-known lately. Uh, because I am a regular on YouTube, it's pretty much the only like media platform I spend much time on. I, I've been seeing a lot for it, and I'm curious about these sorts of things. So, the channel is CoffeeZilla. Interesting. It's become very popular, or at least well, commonly discussed as of late, um, because like seven, eight months ago, something like that, he made a video essentially predicting the... Uh, scam that was FTX and how it looked like all the potential issues that eventually came out. Um, And then the last week or two leading up to the total collapse, uh, he had some more videos in depth. Um, He's got this whole stick going where it's basically just like internet detective. And it's a lot of fun. He has a good presentation. Um, I have the 
this gut feeling that it might be kind of like if you say Joe Rogan in the wrong crowd and people might just be like, oh, you're like a mega Republican. And like, I'm just a Canadian guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I get that sense that it might have that sort of vibe or but I'm not actually sure where I got that. So anyway, if you're offended, I just found the channel. Give me a break. I'm enjoying it. I think yeah, it's interesting. A bunch of finance bros are gonna come after you. Now. Yeah, yeah. But his uh, his videos on FTX are really good. Uh, a lot of detail, and it's just interesting hearing hearing all the I guess details about wow. the case. I do have a wholesome recommendation. This is one that I I watched a lot of. It's another YouTube channel. They watched a lot of a year or two ago, a little bit during uh, the pandemic. Uh, it's called Homemade Wanderlust. And it's just like some lady, I think she's from Texas, and she just talks mostly about different uh, hiking trails and uh, hiking gear. But uh, it's, I haven't watched it much recently, but it's very wholesome because she starts every episode with, hey, y'all, Dixie here. Oh, wow. uh, and she just chats about stuff. Uh, so anyway, it's a good time. I'm I recommend her it. Right now. What <laughs> Home, is homemade wanderlust. Yes, I need to. As as you know, I need to definitely practice my southern accent for whatever reason. Yeah, of course. Um, so. So anyway, recommend that if you just want something chill. Wow. And and potentially if you want to learn like about minimalist camping or, uh, you know, which bag you might want to buy or something like that. So, that's it. That's my list. Well, what I'd about like you? to just camp at home. You can do that if you want. Um, that's the whole reason humans are where they are, right? It's, camping is like so hipster. That's what cavemen did. Right. And I don't know why you would, but... Uh, they did it before it was cool. They did, exactly. Yeah. They didn't have tubes or anything. No beers, <laughs> no MacBooks. <laughs> rocks. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, I'll start off with uh, cool and then move into frustrating. All right. Um, for cool, I uh, forwarded you a uh, blog post yeah. uh, that you ignored because you hate me. That's untrue. These are <laughs> false accusations. <laughs> I'd like to go on the record. You mean if I send you a multiple-page, extremely long blog, you won't read it right away? With the <laughs> with the explanation of that it was very confusing and difficult to read. It was. But uh, you enjoyed it. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to need some time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's open tab. But, yeah, get all the way off my back. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, in summary, the blog is about how Netflix uh, figured out... Um, issue of throttling of caches, uh, not even just regular caches like Redis, this is L1 processor cache uh, that they figured out because of the throughput and the goals they had set for their services. And uh, whatever code they had written in Java, turns out the problem wasn't in Java or the code that they wrote, but in the JVM underneath that someone somehow traced down to its like core, figuring out, oh, this is the code that's actually being called that's uh, not doing the right thing that somehow there's like this fake uh, cache uh, where two caches using the same register even if they're like next to each other next to each other on the registers but on the same line if one writes to it it invalidates the entire line and the next one when it reads like I don't have it even though the data is there it's in the register but because the whole line is invalidated it just it's not as efficient and so they were like solving this problem at uh, I don't even remember whatever the rough thing was, but they wanted like 
don't know, let's say if they wanted 2,000 um, throughput, 2,000 whatever, uh, they were getting like a thousand. And so they were like going really deep down on this, figuring it out. They finally figured it out, wrote a really nice long article with all the pretty graphs that you want um, on how they deep dived into it and how they like went back to JVM and so like, hey, this is what happens for scale. Um, so my lesson that I learned from it was anytime I need to question what my code is doing, I should just blame the underneath language because my code is perfect. Mm -hmm. And if Netflix had worked with that assumption right away, they would have fixed the JVM before whatever time they invested in their own code. <laughs> and if, if they think they're good developers, everyone else is also should be thinking that. And yeah, honestly, might not even have that Python 2.3 problems um, if you just blame the language and not your own code. Right. Isn't that how JavaScript as a community kind of works? You just blame JavaScript? <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You blame JavaScript and then you write like if object type equals equals object. And you NPM install left pad or, or pluralize or um, like remove white space or like whatever these single utility function libraries are. And it's their fault now. Yes. It's uh, I don't know. It's just chaos all over. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know what else is chaotic? It reminded me oh, when wow. you were reading when you were talking about uh, register level. Made me think of assembly, which made me think of a fun, interesting video I watched uh, a couple days ago. Um, I'm forgetting the channel, so I'll have to pull it up again. But the series they're doing is called Greatest Hits, and they pulled their audience and said like, "Hey, what do you want us to do first as a greatest hit?" And they're, it's a channel about video games. And so they do these monthly documentaries about video games. And the first one that won their poll was Roller Coaster Tycoon. So wow. they did a 40-minute uh, documentary about Roller Coaster Tycoon. And it made me think of it because it was written in assembly yeah. by one guy. Uh, yeah. So this guy, he made three video games in his entire career. Uh, transportation or transport tycoon, something like that, something. which basically looks like Roller Coaster Tycoon. Mm -hmm. Like he made Roller Coaster Tycoon and Roller Coaster Tycoon Two, and that was it. And then he's he's basically just done. He can't be contacted, which comes up in the documentary of them trying to get a hold of him. And uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting. It's crazy though because they they went through like uh, why it runs so well because you know low power machines or whatever. Uh, but they did. The guy who made it was one guy that coded it and one guy that did the uh, visuals. And the guy that did the visuals made every single uh, combination of things. So it's like if you have a roller coaster seat, you have to have every number of people that could be on that roller coaster. And they ended up doing some sort of math uh, in the documentary and saying this means that one roller coaster could require, and it was like 6,000 something separate assets. But because of that, it means that, that it performs really well because it doesn't have to do any computation. It's like this is just a hard asset, and it wow. just replaces it. It's just like which one, which money, or which roller coaster chair has six people in it. Pull that one, put it in the uh, roller coaster, and run it. It doesn't have to do any computation on the fly. So it's interesting, but uh, fun game. I played it a ton as a kid, mm -hmm. so it linked a bunch of stuff together: programming and uh, things I did as a child. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, but no, I, I think about that sometimes, you know, the roller coaster tycoon 
good old days when people would just one gamer, one programmer would program an entire game. And you themselves. get? Did you guys get in the cereal box as well? Because that's how we got it no. <laughs> growing up. <laughs> they uh, everybody got Roller Coaster Tycoon. Everybody that I knew that had this, they got Roller Coaster Tycoon or Roller Coaster Tycoon Two. I don't remember. In cereal boxes, it was this weird promotion that we had, uh, at least in Ontario, for a couple of years, where you would just get these random video games as part of cereal boxes, and people would like hunt through at the grocery store looking for the one that had the game that they didn't have yet. So it would have like Monopoly, Sorry, uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon. Um, I don't remember what other ones, but it Damn. was it was a crazy time. What a time to be alive. You go buy cereal, then you get a game, and they're like, damn, I have to buy a computer now. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, our, our Windows 98 did just fine. Yeah, I'm sure. For a while. For a while. We fortunately, This was actually the good thing. My parents didn't want to upgrade anything ever, so we never used Vista. That was a good call. Yeah. <laughs> uh, y'all, y'all were saved, yeah. <laughs> we missed it. We just skipped it entirely. By the time we needed to upgrade officially, I was already using my MacBook Pro, and uh, my mom was, I think she might have missed Windows 10 as well. I don't even know. 98, held strong. Even now? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry. I, I uh, derailed us. Yes. No, that's cool. It's part of the cool section. Of the right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, and yeah, so okay, so that's the cool thing, that article. So yeah, never blame yourself, blame the language, blame everything underneath, because you didn't write it. Yeah. Uh, so obviously it's wrong. And if it was better, it should have stopped you. <laughs> rust. <laughs> like Rust, Golang. Uh, that's what they're written for, right? Um, yeah. And uh, another cool thing that's happening right now uh, is reInvent. This is a plug. Ah, uh, yes. I was paid by AWS. Uh, joke, joke, they don't pay me for any of this. Uh, they just pay me for other shit um, that I do, I guess, in my job. But anyways, reInvent is running, but I, what I thought was cool and sort of funny is any team that's not directly involved with reInvent, you would think AWS is an organization, if reInvent is happening, they would have like events around it, people should be like more involved and engaged. Um, but if your product is not getting announced that year or anything about you is not being talked about, you don't matter and not, you don't get any like attention or emails or anything about it. You don't even get like company time allocated to be like, let's say there's a reInvent talk happening today. Maybe employees should be allowed to watch to see what cool features are being announced that they might use in their own services. But no, 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 no. You can go read it on your own time. Screw you uh, <laughs> is what's basically happening. Uh, if you want an, um, a comparison, here's a comparison. At EA, uh, if a new game was launched, people would like sit in a jar. There's a huge room with a massive screen that you would just sit and watch uh, as a company, or if there's like a soccer game or football game, um, you could watch that sitting together if it's like a big event or something. Uh, but no, not Amazon, not for their own event. I see. Um, while we're on the topic of Amazon, here's the frustrating thing. Okay, that wasn't frustrating enough. No, 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 <laughs> uh, that's just a random rant. Uh -huh. uh, what's frustrating is AWS resource limits and quotas. So the reason it bothers me is you go to the cloud, you think cloud is this seamless entity, and then you try to spend more than 20 instances or whatever, I don't know what the actual limit is, and they'll be like, no, sir, no, no, no. Contact your support, do you want more of these? Do you need more of these? And then we'll maybe like increase your quota and capacity. I get that for some things, maybe it helps like alleviate 
uh, I don't know, spams or whatever, trying to like just use up a bunch of storage and then have a fake credit card and never pay you and go away. Um, but I feel like uh, at an org that high, there's probably other ways to deal with that. Um, or maybe just give me the resource. Uh, I shouldn't have to initiate an initial request. It should be, hey, you're requesting this much. We've allocated this. Do you actually need this? And can you explain their use case? And if you can, we'll just take it away, sort of thing. Uh, where they're trying to protect their whatever scaling, but if I understand the organization correctly, they're always much more ahead of making sure they have the capacity than whatever their actual usage is. Um, and part of why that usage limit is finally bothering me will come in our episode discussion. Sweet. Um, and then the final frustrating thing before I talk about one interesting thing moving on okay. um, is Helm. So <laughs> I read about Helm over the weekend. So okay. I'm looking into Kubernetes now because I'm in the interviewing phases and stuff. Yeah. And people care about the outside world technologies a lot more than what whatever's in the native blue S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I looked over <laughs> Helm, it, documentation didn't make anything very clear. Yes. So I went through like tutorials, then I read through some docs, then I read through some articles, then I watched some YouTube videos. It's just a templating language. Yes. It's, it's, it seems way more complicated, and then you use it and you're like, oh, is, you, just, yeah. you just define some more YAML. Yeah, you you have a file with the variables in it, and uh, that's it. And then you just templatize, yep. which blows my mind how that's not a Kubernetes built-in feature. Right. Just, I don't know, dot .yaml x or something. Just define your variables in there. Environment variables. K Kubernetes has etcd. It's a key value store. That's what it's made for. <laughs> Why can't I just swap values in and out in a templatized manner? Why must I use another tool on top uh, to do my like on-the-fly substitution? I don't even need Helm. I if I have to provide my own variables file, why don't I just put like double quotes around everything? and then pass it through the Linux CLI utility called env substitute where everything it fetches from environment variables substitutes it. Done, over, move on, get a new life. Well, if you want to make it extra confusing, you can add customize like my previous team did. Have you come across customize? No, what is that? <laughs> customize with a K. Okay. Uh, it is a way of writing abstract uh, Kubernetes files that then are used as default values and base templates to then layer on more configuration on top of it. So you don't have to duplicate. But the thing about YAML is you'll find that once you start layering things, it immediately becomes so confusing you wish you just duplicated it. Because you're like, oh, okay, let me check the staging values for this service, because we have a microservice architecture. So they were like, we want to define everything as a base template. But then you're like, okay, let me check. Oh, it's empty. Uh, okay, let's see what it's using. Oh, my customized passes in four layers of files. And you're like, okay, at which point did we override the value I care about? <laughs> so, and then you wrapped all that up as like, okay, this exports a new uh, valid, like kubeconfig or whatever your deployment YAML is, whatever you want, whatever you're using. It exports that and then you version that, put that version as the app version in your uh, Helm chart, and now you've got your Helm chart that points to this kubeconfig. None of it exists. It's all like virtualized stuff that you can't even track down. So yeah, as a like, as a 
Kubernetes noob as I still am, but certainly was two years ago. Very uh, strange. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, I was not, not impressed. I look forward to maybe never touch customize with a K. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there was apparently something else called Carpenter with a K. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, don't, that's, don't use that. So okay. that's, that was one of the ways I stabilized our uh, deployments a while ago. So it's essentially um, auto-scaling groups without the auto-scaling group. So the way that auto-scaling groups work is, um, at this again, within the context of AWS, because that's how I was working with it, uh, with an auto-scaling group, you have your scaling config. And when your, whatever you're using, cluster auto-scaler in most cases, that's the, the standard mm -hmm. that everyone uses, it'll be like, oh, there's some pending pods. Let me see where I could, uh, what instances could it could be assigned to. This it, it's node selector matches this node group. Let me try to scale that up. And if there's uh, enough space, so like if the desired's not already at the maximum, it'll increase the desired size. Then AWS will say, oh, we need a new instance. It'll spin up an EC2 instance. And then if that pod hasn't been assigned already, it's still impending, it'll be assigned to or scheduled on that new instance. So that is, in some cases, slow or whatever, even though it's a minute or something. Uh, so customize bypasses all of that and just basically says, you need a instance, let me skip the autoscaler and go directly to creating an EC2 instance. It does this on a bunch of uh, different cloud providers, so it's cloud agnostic, but on uh, AWS, it says, let me create you an EC2 instance. I'll add my labels and all the taints and everything that I need to make it pretend like it's running normally. Uh, and then just assign you directly to this EC2 instance. So we were having like zero to 60 instances spun up in like a matter of seconds, which is not great when you want mm -hmm. like smooth, normal scaling. Cause we would have these spiky workloads. So it would say like here, where I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna be a Argo workflow. I'm gonna schedule 40 pods in parallel. Suddenly we have 40 instances because uh, Carpenter's like, I got you, I'll create, like 40 T2 smalls or whatever. And you're like, I, I didn't need this. <laughs> like if, if you had just spun up one like R5 or whatever, it would have just been like, okay, your R5 large. Let me throw like six of them on there. Wait three seconds. Those have completed. Here's another one. And then if you're waiting 30 seconds, it'll spin up another pod or another uh, node. And it just sort of smoothly goes through it. So yeah, if you need like high performance, highly reactive systems, that's fine. But it immediately, because you don't have the autoscaler group, you're like, oh, I want to monitor like how many instances I have in my cluster. Immediately more difficult because nothing's, you can't use the built-in AWS uh, metrics anymore that are based around autoscaling groups. Yeah. So it's really easy at a glance to look at charts that are just like, oh, my small scaling group is pinned at the maximum all the time. I should probably give it some more space or uh, it's not being used very heavily. It's consistently dropping to zero. Like, oh, okay, let's try to spread out our workloads a bit more. It's like it's more like at two or three instances at all times, whatever it is. But with Carpenter, it was just like had to use the, um, uh, what is that called? The, I don't know, separate, uh, the separate metrics thing that are, uh, AWS provides. CloudWatch? The CloudWatch agent, yeah. You had to install the CloudWatch agent, which thing it was like, because for, stock two stuff, we had to have metrics on all of our 
instances. And because I couldn't do anything through uh, CloudWatch at the auto-scaling group level to be like, is our auto-scaling group using high CPU? They're like, we need to have metrics on all of these. And then they're being spun up and killed within a matter of seconds. So like the patch manager doesn't even run. So then SOC2 was complaining. So like, unless you have a special case, this is a very long divergence, but unless you have a special case for that immediate spawning of EC2 instances, Carpenter with a K uh, has foot guns. Wow. It sounds interesting, but I think when we were using it as well, it was still on like version zero dot something. Okay. So super fun. That's good to know. Yeah. Good to know. Um, huh. I wonder if it has like integration to Fargate or something, so you could just install a full on instance and run a little container, get it done, get out, use the purpose of containers. Yeah. Surely there must be like uh, really optimized paths for it, but at least the in implementation that I was handed uh, when I found out we were using Carpenter, I was just like, this is so far beyond the paved road. Like, why? <laughs> we, don't, we don't need any of this. We have very modest requirements. Well, that's what you do. That's how it's blazingly fast. That's right, yeah. <laughs> With our 500 megabyte Python-based... Uh, pods. Wow. Yeah, I don't think we need it to be blazingly <laughs> fast. Uh, all right, and then the final cool re-recommendation uh, is a recommendation from a, one of the previous episodes done by our guest, Nathan. Oh, yeah, that's me. Uh, is the Tesla AI guy on Lex Friedman. Oh, yeah. Yeah, in the past two weeks, I've gone through 70% of the episode. <laughs> uh, and yeah, he's just a cool, you just... It randomly, his laughs are very interesting, uh, but he just also, yeah, just has have like a random just thoughts, and when he talks about them, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. This is Andre Karpathy. Yeah, right? yeah, that guy. Yeah, and I think I'm at the section where they're not like talking about his personal life or whatever, and his take on movies, um, but yeah, the whole growing the AI, how he thinks about them, how it happened at Tesla. Uh, how much he loves uh, Lord and Savior Elon, and <laughs> just all sorts of things. But yeah, he just—it's very—he's a very listening-worthy guy. You just—you're like, yeah, I get, it. I get why you have a PhD. You probably just read your whole dissertation. Everyone was like, yeah, this is nice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What was it about? I don't know. What a great I, guy. Yeah. Well, well, he's, a just, guy. he's just a nice guy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can shoot the shit and have pancakes next to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that was a that was a fun one that I ended up listening to over the last many weeks. Good, uh, good because good. I can't listen to an eight-hour podcast in the same day. Weak. Weak. That's weakness talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's it. That's the end of my sections. Right on. Cool. Well, that might be the longest intro section <laughs> we've ever done. We could just divert and talk about our frustration about Kubernetes and make this a Kubernetes <laughs> episode. <laughs> I don't know if I have much else left. To talk about, there's a lot of good stuff in Kubernetes, though. That's the thing. Um, but no, we've already teased everybody with chaos, and unless that's you true. unless you have like 45 minutes of chaos, then I think we can still. That's true. Make that I, the main topic. I don't. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sure between you and I, we could push it to 45. If yeah. We wanted. yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, we'll we'll do a little teaser. Our episodes this season has been like a little bit of everything all of the time, and I like that. Uh, right. Because it keeps it interesting. Yeah. We'll bring some chaos later again as okay. I learn more about it. Sure. Um, but but yeah, uh, for starters, I have a structure, of course. Nice, good. Uh, what is chaos testing? 
what do you think of Nathan when I talk when about I think it? When you say chaos testing, what do I think of? Yeah. I think of uh, Chaos Monkey, and I think of Netflix, and uh, that's about it. But if I had to, like, fill in, if I was in an interview, I might answer it something like, okay, so my understanding of chaos testing uh, is that you have a bunch of infrastructure and you want to be resilient to failures. Uh, well, your application as a whole, you want to be resilient to failures. And so the purpose of chaos testing is to introduce those failures automatically. And that way you can, ahead of time, test your application and infrastructure resilience. That way it's not happening in real time when you're, I guess, not prepared for it in the middle of the night or something. That'd be the extent of it. I've never worked with chaos testing, so uh, I'm curious to hear about it. Congratulations, you have the job. Ah, yeah. excellent. That was so easy. Uh, yeah. This now I just have to invert uh, a binary tree. <laughs> yeah, here's your 550k package. This is meta, and we may let you go tomorrow. But for you know, now, this you is know what? You got to risk it to get the biscuit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's not that's nail on the head. Uh, yeah, hammer yeah. on the nail. No, no, you hit the nail on the head. That's right. Why would you hit the nail? You oh right, yeah. you're hitting the nail oh, on the head. I understand that now. Uh, oh wow. Lifelong mystery solved, folks go home. <laughs> uh, but yeah, chaos testing, exactly that. Yeah, you want to purposefully break your system so that when they actually do break, uh, you're ready because the famous, I think, catchy phrase is, we are no longer at the time of if our systems will break, but we are at the time when our systems will break. And you know why? US East one. Yeah, well, I was gonna say, <laughs> you're right. You are right. <laughs> it's a more specific example. I was going with the principle to tie it back to someone else owns your infrastructure because it's in the um, cloud, and since obviously it's someone else, they're gonna make a mistake. That's true. Uh, because it's not you. Um, so just like you blame your language, <laughs> of course, you should blame your infrastructure provider. Yes. So when US East One is down, that's not your fault. No. No, it's. It's obviously the cloud, the unnamed cloud provider's fault. Yeah. Uh, and so you shouldn't be held accountable. But what you can do is try to be the person that gets the bragging rights to say our application is still up, despite the fact that US East One is down. So even though GitHub is down, even though, uh, which is actually funny because they're owned by Microsoft, but yeah. they seem to always go down whenever US East One is down. Um, I don't know, Fortnite, whatever else goes down when US East <laughs> 1 is down, uh, you're not, and you can flex on everybody. Yeah, or alternatively, because you've tested this in a chaos testing scenario where, like, if they go down, we're screwed, you just grab a margarita and go sit on a beach. Or, like, we've been through this, guys. Yeah. We don't have the funding, we can't move anywhere else. Cross Cloud is bad, I heard on a podcast. Last January, I actually just cooked chicken. Like, I just started making lunch when US East 1 went down. I was working from home at the time. Yeah, what else do you do? <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I can't log into GitHub. Can't commit code, so obviously I shouldn't write any code. Yeah. Uh, let's just uh, eat some food. Yeah. Probably watched uh, South Park or something. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, the, so that's the point of it. Um, I like to, or a term I heard that I think fits a lot better, uh, instead of chaos testing or chaos engineering is like catchy, right. uh, but because I'm such a positive person who never complains, uh, I like to call it reliability engineering, oh. uh, or that's the phrase I learned somewhere that I'm like, yeah, that fits more because you're not engineering chaos, you're engineering reliability by introducing chaos. That's just the input. 
uh, you want the output to be more reliable systems. Um, but yeah, and that's yeah exactly we've answered. The structure was what it is, why to do chaos testing, that's essentially it. It might be hard to sell to your business that yes, 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 Chris, we are gonna take down our systems on purpose. And they're like, what the heck are we talking about? Is when you explain to them the business cost of when it actually goes down will be a lot worse uh, or not. Maybe you're, I don't know, tiny URL or something that if you go down, it's not that big a deal. Uh, but if you are something like, yeah, Netflix, you may want to be more mm -hmm. resilient. Yeah, and there's, uh, I guess there's levels to this. Uh, so we obviously started with a bunch of talk about uh, unexpectedly Kubernetes. And one of the things about having a Kubernetes-based system uh, is that it tends to be within a certain context, very res uh, resilient to individual server failures, something like that. So if you have a, uh, let's say a node group on AWS spread across a bunch of availability zones and you have your topology set to multi-AZ so that they, uh, the, what is that called, anti-pog affinity, so that they don't, they prefer not to share a availability zone, which I think is the default anyway. Uh, then you, then if like one data center goes down, then your other two are still there, and then your pods will be moved from one uh, instance to the other. Um, and then at a higher level, you have to start abstracting it. Like, okay, if the whole region goes down, what happens? And currently, uh, my my company is just offline, yeah. but uh, you could, for example, have a DNS route or something that it'll just automatically redirect to a backup version of your uh, infrastructure that'll scale up. Or if you run full-time multi-region, then it might just not be able to handle as much traffic or whatever initially, but it'll scale up. So what is it? Hot, cold, and warm backups. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. All those, your favorite terminology? Mm -hmm. And yeah, and that depends again on the system you have. Maybe if you're a bank system, warm, cash, or cold, uh, backups may not be the best thing for you. Maybe someone doesn't want to wake up one day and be like, why, why, why do I have my paycheck as like three days ago or my bank account? Uh, unless they spend a bunch of money, then they might love to see that number. <laughs> uh, but yeah, systems like those, maybe you want to be more, uh, you figure out how to do your own chaos testing. Uh, fun fact, I learned recently that, you know, a lot of times or at least once a year that you see those we will, our systems will be down for like yeah. maintenance or whatever. A, a big amount of times those maintenance are like drills that banks have to do uh, to maintain like compliance or whatever, where a lot of banks, they, they even do extreme extremities where they'll like lock out everyone out of the office and still be able to make sure that if you have data loss or network outage or whatever, you can recover. Wow. Uh, so banks are trying, guys. Uh, they've got tech and they've got people doing backups and recovery because that's where their money is at. Their money is not at high concurrency, fast systems. Their money is at making sure money is there, all that asset compliance and good stuff mm. uh, remains. So learning that that's how they use chaos testing, uh, reliable engineering, uh, is cool. Um, yeah. And then other thing is how. How do we do it, Nathan? I heard on a podcast recently uh, that there's a thing in AWS called Fault Injection Service, FIS. Uh, that's the extent of what I know about it. So tell me more. Yeah, and then whoever told you that gave you partial but wrong information. Uh, they, uh, he or she, uh, learned today that it's actually um, 
fault injection simulator and not fault injection service. Uh, <sighs> I know, I know. I, I was duped. Uh, I was tricked. I, I would even say bamboozled. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Let's let's not let's not get carried away here. All right. Uh, just deceived. <laughs> just deceived. Yeah. Bamboozled is. Oh, that's when you just let's stop listening to him. Unsubscribe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever this person is on the <laughs> podcast you're speaking of. Um, but yeah, fault injection simulator. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, I've I've had the opportunity to use it more now, and it has a lot of like pre-made recipes. You could say uh, where you could simulate what happens if you restart an instance while it's in service, what happens if you, you can introduce random latency delays in your application at like the port level. Nice. Uh, a lot of it is by just like changing the IP tables configuration stuff. You could block certain ports. You could even select a subnet and say, 30% of the time don't route any requests or something and it somehow figures that out. Uh, it's got, uh, what's the one that I recently used? Uh, I used the, the blocking the port. I used the rebooting and terminating the instance. Um, and yeah, and it, and it has like some recovery mechanisms too. So it'll be like, okay, run this test to block this port for 20 minutes. But once after 20 minutes, make sure the service is back to how the revert to the normal state. And it's like, okay, cool. I'll do that. And it's just just reverts whatever commands it ran, and because it's a managed service, it's reliable, it does what's asked. Uh, I don't know what happens if it's like doing something on an instance, and if you go through the manually through the UI and delete that instance, I haven't tested any weird edge cases there. Uh -huh. uh, but as far as its own service, it works pretty well. Uh, I, just, I just think of it as like a cool guy service, uh, because it's able to do a whole bunch of these things, but it's not very communicative. Uh, <laughs> the default option is not to log anything to S3 or CloudWatch. Right. So, and its output terminal doesn't have any output. It just says, created, running, success or failed. And I'm like, what happened in running? Could you walk me through it? It's like, no. So what, is this like a, a Linux-based CLI? It's just like the <laughs> absence of output is yeah. success? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> uh, so now that I've like, geared it to, and then I ran an experiment, I told it, all right, please output something to this CloudWatch log so I can see what you're doing. Uh, and it outputted like four lines. And I'm like, you ran for 20 minutes. What did you do in that 20 minutes? Could you give me more updates? It'll, be, it'll just be like, no, I ran this script recipe. I'm like, can you tell me what this recipe did? Are there any logs of this recipe? It's like, no. I just, we just do things. We don't talk about things. Um, yeah, so was not was not a fan of that, but um, the thing I found there is it has this weird resource limit of if you're doing experiments or running things on EC2, at a given time you can target a max of five instances, which is fine if I have 20 instances in my fleet or 30. If I have a service with 200 instances, Taking down five may might not even cause any chaos. It yeah. might be a cup. Of chaos. <laughs> uh, a best of chip. A best of chip. Uh, and I just uh, and it's one of those AWS limits that you can't increase. So I went to the quota and the service dashboard, and I clicked on it, and it said adjustable. No. <laughs> I'm like, why would you even show me this? <laughs> what am I supposed? To, what are my options? <laughs> and it's like call support if you need any more help with this. Huh. And I'm like, I'll just slack the 
owning team, I guess. It's just be like, hey guys, what is this? How do I get around this? Yeah, because um, I'm not, like I don't work at a big company. Even that would probably go unnoticed if just five of our instances went down. Yeah. Like, cause at any given time, uh, yeah, we have anywhere from I guess two to around like thirty-five instances. And so, yeah, if two were just killed or went inactive, it would just spin up some more. Yeah. Uh, and if we were at 35 and five got killed, then probably nothing would really happen. Those pods would be rescheduled and that would be it. Yeah, but that's where, because you're using Kubernetes, so it's yeah, good yeah. for you. The service we have is EC2 native. Right, yeah. Like, I'm not, if, if, some, if we were self-hosting Postgres uh, or, or whatever on the server and they killed that, that would be a problem. Yes. But, yeah, or let's say you server you run the port blocking thing, and it goes ahead and blocks the service port, but you don't have any readiness checks in there. Yeah, you're kind of screwed now. Yeah. Uh, so that's the thing, sort of thing that it like tries to resurface by uh -huh. running those things. Um, but yeah, besides the stupid limits, uh, I thought it was pretty cool. It had all these things built in. Um, a lot of these things, like if I wanted to simulate myself, I'd have to write a lambda, make sure it has the right IAM permissions, make sure yeah, that'd be a super the right pain. cadence. Yeah, yeah, it'd be annoying. You know, I had to do a bunch of queries and stuff, and it's just like, nah, I got you, bro. And it goes ahead and do it. I just love. I would love if it had some sort of like this or this uh, sort of thing. So if I tell it to do the five percent of my fleet, and my five percent of my fleet is ten instances. I just don't want it to fail. I want it to go and say, well, the most I can do is five here. Uh -huh. And it just goes and does it on the five and uh, puts it in the log somewhere. But currently it does not. I see. Um, How new is the simulation? Do you know? I don't have an exact date, but I know it's new enough based on how basic the dashboard is. I see. Uh, of the services. And when I was browsing through the Slack channel for the service team, because uh, each service team has like a, hashtag service-interest channel within AWS that's open to everyone in the company. So you can go in and just be like, hey, um, I, what is this? Right. Uh, then the, someone from the team can hopefully be like, yeah, yeah we can help you with this. Uh, so I went in that channel, a lot of people had like similar constraints of like, what do you mean I can only update five instances at a time? Uh, they're like, let, let's, let me DM you. And then maybe what they talked about. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was one of those things I learned. Chaos Monkey, yes, also built by Netflix, another tool people can investigate. Uh, since the chaos revolution, uh, there's a lot of tools that you can use to like inject all sorts of craziness into your instances, network. Uh, but it's nice to know that the cloud provider itself has built something that I can rely on as opposed to a random library I pulled off of GitHub that may or may not work or will be killed in a few years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have to write a chaos test to make sure if I can test that library going away. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that was a cool one. And that's one of the ways I have discovered. There's other services, but they're all internal to AWS, so I can't talk about them. Right. Uh, but essentially, they all do the same thing. They're just like some way to tell us to do something bad to your system. Uh, and you as a user now have to figure out and think how... Um, you can simulate things like that. Um, I don't know. I think I saw something about like an AZ blockage of sorts as well. But yeah, like if you have a subnet spawning over three AZs, maybe you go in and part of your chaos test, you kill one subnet in a singular AZ. And you know, you're like, let's see what happens. Do our logs go crazy? Um, yeah. I noticed that our service, if there's a deployment going on and I kill five of the instances, 
the minimum barrier of ensuring our durability gets hit, uh, and uh, service that, like service basically is unusable for like four minutes or something, mm-hmm. uh, which was cool because my team was like, "Hey, we noticed every time this there was a drop here, you ran a chaos test." And I was like, "Yes, I did," uh, and I. First time I wasn't sure, second time I was mostly sure, third time I did it to get a conclusive evidence. Uh, and now I can prove it with logs that yes, our service can withstand something like that. Uh, so now they're gonna look into it. So I made my dev's life slightly harder, but you know what, that's what you get for yeah. signing up for this. Yeah, it makes you think about all the trade-offs too, cause like, uh, I'm just thinking of the fact that we run these um, Argo instances, and, or Argo, Argo as a service, self-hosted. And on a previous episode, I did this thing where I'm like, I'm pretty sure our issue is that we're having uh, workflows spanning multiple availability zones. And then they were trying to do something with local storage that, or like EBS, I guess, which isn't local storage, but storage that's a network drive that is not in the same availability zone. So it gets confused and just kills the pod. And then the pod reports a failure and whatever. So as a result of that, it was like, okay, well now we have to isolate each workflow within a single availability zone, which means it's now less resilient and the scheduling gets more confusing. So I've been dealing for the last few weeks about trying to balance everything where it's like before we had just had a pool of compute of different sizes, didn't really matter. There's two gigs available here. All right, something with, that fits in two gigs can fit there. But now it's like, I've got this large n- set of nodes and I've got large pods that run there, but then you want some smaller ones in there too, so they can fill in the extra gaps, otherwise you've wasted compute. But now I'm just thinking, listening to that, it's like, okay, well now we've traded off that if one of our subnets goes down, none of those pods can run. It used to just be like, it wouldn't even care. It would, we would lose some total level of compute, but it would just find somewhere else to run. Like all of our subnets would have to go down. Basically our entire VPC would have to go down. But now it's like, no, you kill one subnet, which is one availability zone, and nothing can get scheduled there. And so if we had that as a requirement and I was supposed to simulate it, we would fail that simulation. Mm. Yes. Uh, But on the flip side, our application, which is not doing anything weird with Argo, it's just served on the internet, it spans multiple availability availability zones and would survive that. But if the whole region went down, it would not survive that. Yeah. Uh, but it means it's cheaper because we don't have to host it in multiple regions and we don't have cross-region traffic and all that. It's a very interesting problem. Yeah. So it's an interesting space and uh, I'm very curious about if you end up making any real like changes to your application based on chaos testing. Most likely not. Most likely the service teams will because it's all written in Rust. Uh, I might influence some decision on how we architect our infrastructure, Okay. but it'll be very hard because the service we're building is a zonal service, so it has to exist within uh, AZ. I see. Because it's all about that blazingly fast, uh, high-speed, low latency. Right. Um, so we don't even have the option to go to other AZs. So if AZ is down, our service is down, it's, it's part of the business. That's live. That's live, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if we have a deployment going on, and few of our interests go down, our service should not be going down. That's yeah. bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's they're looking at fixing or figuring that out. Uh, but apparently, it's not a funded project. So um, hmm. I don't know. Not my problem. My problem was just to tell them there's a problem, <laughs> and I did it. Uh, nice. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and that leads me to like, how do you do the process? Like, how do you even 
start adding chaos testing to your stack if you were a bright-end developer and wanted to introduce it to your company. Uh, the way I did it, uh, which I don't know if it's the best way, but it worked for me, uh, <laughs> and I was able to so sell it to people at AWS, so I think you should be able to as well, um, is I divided it into three phases. Phase one was requirements gathering, where I went into each team and said, all right, tell me every way your application can fail, which is a fun team bonding exercise uh, because people sometimes get attached and like want their code or thing to never fail, mm -hmm. but having them think the other way helps them like discover certain things about how maybe it's architected, what trade-offs they've made uh, building that. And uh, that was a fun activity. We talked, I talked to a couple of teams, uh, figured out multiple ways the application can fail uh, and some ways that they highlighted saying, okay, but maybe I think if this failed this way, our application should, should sustain. And I was like, aha, you know, I have a way to verify that should uh, by breaking it in a very controlled manner. Controlled chaos is the way to go. <laughs> um, and uh, then I implemented uh, phase one was that, phase two is building the infrastructure. So let's build that infrastructure. And there's a bit of a team culture or mechanisms as we call them in AWS or Amazon, I guess. The mechanism is every Friday or a couple of days, I'm just doing a couple of days because I want to and no one can stop me. Uh, but ideally you just, you have one playground day or something where you have the on calls, the team, everyone on board that no one's making changes, no one's doing deployments. Let me break the service in this way and see what happens. Let's monitor the alarms, let's see if it gets caught. Uh, and phase two is currently in progress for one of our services. I built some infrastructure. I informed the, our on-calls and I told them, hey, I'm gonna run this at this exact UTC. Keep an eye out, something will probably break. And it did, you know what? It did, <laughs> and they were happy. Uh, I mean, not very much, but they were happy that they didn't have to root cause this because we knew exactly what broke it. They had to know root cause why their assumption of this shouldn't have broken failed. I see. Um, and uh, none of it is automated right now. All of it is, I have the infrastructure, but I have to still go through the AWS UI and run it, communicate to the team, stop the experiment. And uh, I was today given a requirement to look into automating it. And I very admittedly told them that our service is not ready. Uh, and I will build an infrastructure around it, and then I will disable it, and then leave it be. Um, so that I've done my job, but at least a few weeks, if not a few months, the service is away from having constant chaos hitting it multiple hours a day uh, and still be resilient against it. Um, yeah, so, but that was a good conversation that came out of it. And then the phase three that I've pitched is automation, uh, which will be months, months away. There's no way we can automate anything right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least the deployment and uh, creation of artifacts and infrastructure is within code. Uh, so other teams can uh, go look at that. And oh, fun fact, the way, another way I know that this chaos testing is a very new service is if you find the CDK constructs to create it, uh, they're all L1 constructs, which means there's no like AWS EC2 auto scaling that's like an L3 construct where it has a bunch of things it creates underneath. Right. Uh, this is like CFN experiment template, which are, you're literally writing the cloud formation but in Java, in TypeScript. And um, usually very immature new services have that because nothing else is built around them or they're not smart enough to have L2 constructs yet. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was another thing when I was writing it, I was like, oh, I could just write this as a CloudFormation template in CDK. 
sort of dislike it, but I don't care. The good thing about that is if I write it, the code is much more verbose and long, but when it outputs the actual CloudFormation template, I can literally just open them side by side. Like, all right, the values I wanted templated are templated, everything's good. Right. And because it's a CloudFormation template, I can go into AWS UI and just be like, validate this, is it good? All right, I'm moving on with my life. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, that's at least the current process I've pitched that seemed to be accepted within the team. We got funding for it and things are going on. Nice. Yeah, so would you like to now go ahead and destroy your stack? Yeah, um, yeah, actually it sounds like a really interesting uh, <laughs> task, but it's certainly not the priority of my, of my current company. Resilience is not our top priority. Uh, and I'm trying to, I heard a while ago, I don't know if this is true, that priority used to only be singular. There was no such thing as multiple priorities. And then that became a thing that developed over a number of decades or something where suddenly people had plural priorities. So I try to think of like, what is the top priority and just think mm -hmm. of it as singular. And that's not our top right now. So at least it's not mine as I've been told by the business and I'm the closest person to the one who would be implementing something like chaos testing. So, <laughs> so that means, unfortunately, it's not my uh, priority either. Um, but yeah, sounds like a really interesting thing. I yeah. try to think about it as like a theoretical uh, when I'm building something or changing something. And I kind of, to some extent, a little bit treat staging that way, where it's just like, eh, I'm not going to... For example, in production, if I'm going to need to uh, tear down and rebuild a node group, I'll create a temporary node group beside it so that any pods can migrate over to that. Or if new pods need to be spawned, they can run on that while I'm tearing down and rebuilding the old one. But in staging, I'll just kind of let it rip through. Mm -hmm. And that way I can see like what does our application do? Because staging is very similar to our production environment. Uh, we don't have a separate development environment. So we just have staging and production right now. Plan is eventually to have three. Uh, so staging is kind of just like a scaled down, but also kind of half broken production environment because it's also development. So I get a good simulation of sorts, mm -hmm. but oftentimes it's just disappointing. It's like, yeah, just a lot of stuff fails. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's just an ideal. Um, but the nice thing is that it's very rare that anyone seems to notice. So the interruptions, if they are there, are very brief. So that's been good, but yeah, having something official, automation and things sounds a lot of fun, so. Yeah, I, and the way I've thought about it is, is very much, is, it's a process uh, and workflow highlighter. Like it's, it's the implementation of the chaos is the easiest thing about chaos testing. Right. Uh, it's, yeah, however many ways things can break, how do you highlight that? How do you think about your system as a whole on what could actually in reality go wrong? Like, Sure, I could try to test that my application can sustain if my subnet gets fucked up like 30% of the time. Uh -huh. But that's not reality. That's not, even with the AWS, if it goes down, it'll go down for an entire day, but then it'll be stable for the rest of the year or many years. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's not a re realistic scenario. On the other hand, testing out uh, EC2 instance completely getting degraded or something bad happening to it is a more much more realistic scenario, especially if you're using like, on-spot instances, like spot or on-demand or whatever. Uh -huh. um, so things like that, yeah, or your application code because of a, I don't know, memory buildup or CPU stress, those are like more realistic things that, yeah, you should test around more often. 
but yeah, thinking about all those, figuring out if my application is even doing that. Uh, if you know your pod had, if you're using like a pod-based system, the application has no state, and it goes through and like takes up too much memory, gets killed by Kubernetes. Maybe you don't necessarily need a chaos testing environment for that. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the I guess things that sort of uh, came out uh, as you were mentioning using staging uh, as that environment is. I had a chat with my team where they were saying, okay, we can build another region, a little, little, little environment where you can run this. And uh, I sort of fought against that idea because if it's an isolated environment where I'm causing chaos but nothing's running against it, yeah. I don't. you're gonna lose visibility, eventually you'll forget about it, uh, forget about it, and then, <laughs> so you really need a service or a state where you have traffic or you have liveness or something is running because that is exactly what's gonna happen in production. Uh, so, so far, yeah, I'm running it in our beta environment where I run a bunch of load tests constantly against our service. Uh, and then once it's happy enough there, I'll run it in like our gamma, which is our pre-prod, our pre-pre-prod uh, stage environment of, okay, let's let's do this. And anything that has reached gamma should be stable, pristine, nothing should take it down, and then many things take it down. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's a good place to show it, as opposed to beta, where things are low-key expected to break, but not too much, it's our integration stage. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just fun to look at things that way, where it's like, someone would be like, no, no, you're gonna break things, break it in your own little environment. I'm like, that's not yeah. providing any value, that's like <laughs> the opposite of the culture that chaos is supposed to bring. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's the problem with not having a separate development environment at my current team, mm -hmm. uh, is because staging, like when things break, we, we do triage each morning, where we look at any new bugs that came into, into Jira, Sentry, because they're integrated uh, overnight. And anytime it's like, oh, it's just staging, I'll just mark it as done. It's like, because staging is kind of broken, people just expect that it's broken, but then things slip through. It's like, well, staging told us that this didn't work. I fixed some stuff today. All of those things failed in staging, and they were literally like file paths being wrong, optional arguments not being optional, like things that are entirely obvious and easy if we trusted the errors coming out of staging. So yeah, there's a limiting effect of chaos testing in a lesser, more prone to errors environment, because you're like, oh, errors happened. It's like, oh yeah, but errors always happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bad things happen, move on, Nathan. <laughs> They're only bad if they happen in prod. They're, yeah. <laughs> yeah, have some perspective. So spoiled. Yeah. It's cool. Well, that's it, that's all I had for chaos for now. Right on. I can't put this in earlier because we didn't bring it up. But before we get into the last uh, segment, I wanted to loop back and just quickly mention Helm charts because you complained about Helm charts. But I'm like, I, I do want to make it clear where they are useful because we use a ton of Helm charts uh, at my company. Uh, so if you are installing a external Kubernetes distributed application, uh, which is not a decentralized application, for clarity, uh, if you haven't heard of DApps, no. Oh, those are apps built on the Ethereum blockchain. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. So distributed, like across multiple servers, not uh, um, not decentralized, whatever that means for applications. <laughs> uh, then it's very useful to be able to do two lines of like 
um, add Helm chart and then install application. So the CloudWatch agent that took me 45 minutes to remember the name of earlier, that I've installed with a Helm chart and AWS typically asks you to use a Helm chart. But they provide it, it's provided by AWS, you kind of trust like, okay, this is a good thing. And the nice thing about a Helm chart is they come with a virgin, uh, a virgin, a version, <laughs> come with a version number. So then you can increment it and you get whatever their updates are as a collection of changes. So you don't have to worry about individually managing like your uh, Kubernetes deployments and making sure that that matches the upgraded variable names or whatever. They change everything internally, ship it. Then you can wait a few days and see if any issues come up on GitHub. And then if none do, then you can upgrade your your uh, Helm chart. And so we have a few like that. Uh, internally, uh, we use, for some reason, we have that shipping our application. I don't think that's necessary. Uh, but for the um, infrastructure, or the Kubernetes-related applications that I've added uh, in the last few months, I haven't bothered with the Helm charts for things that we have running internally. Uh, it's just like, yeah, we'll just write the Kubernetes deployment. We, if we're going to manage all this, we don't need the abstraction of Helm on top of it just to deploy it. Like we may as well just use it. But if you're going to expose something, it's nice to be able to tag a version to all your changes, and someone can import that. So, yeah, we have like the uh, CloudWatch agent. Uh, we have our Argo servers. They're using the Argo Proj Helm chart as well. And so anytime they ship that, it automatically upgrades our UI and our uh, server and our controller, so a bunch of things all at once. And then we don't have to worry about it. So it is useful in that respect. You don't have to manage a bunch of individual Kubernetes YAML files. That is pretty cool, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's uh, <laughs> I forget what the exact issue I had earlier with, like earlier this year was with Helm, but I had a back and forth with uh, one of my teammates where I was complaining about Helm and we both came to the conclusion collectively, like yes, uh, Helm's the worst, but also it's way better than doing this ourselves. <laughs> so uh, much like democracy, it's the worst solution despite all the others. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like Jenkins. Like Jenkins. Yeah. It's yeah. Helm is Helm is the new Jenkins. In Helm is the Jenkins of Kubernetes, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Wait till Argo hears that that he's gonna be heartbroken. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, don't and tell. It'd be better if he just did. If he just didn't do CD. If he did CI as well, CT, then he could be Jenkins. But I see. No one well, can match Jenkins. Yeah, well, Argo has Argo CD as well. They have a very satisfying UI. If you watch the pods roll out, it looks very satisfying. Yes. But uh, at least the tutorial I saw. That's the only thing I saw Argo CD. I didn't know. Oh was... no, they have a whole collection of services. They've got wow. Argo. So we use Argo workflows. Um, but they have Argo CD. The funny thing is they're all Argo Proj. It's all in one GitHub repo. So I am subscribed to their new releases, but I'll get an email and it's just like, Argo CD version, I'm like, I don't care, we don't use that. And they're like, Argo events, I'm like, yeah, I don't care, we don't use that. And then it's like, Argo workflows. Oh, okay, update. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, they have a bunch of stuff. I forget, I think they have five different services, something like that. CD and workflows are the ones I can remember off the top of my head. Very nice. Yes, sir. All right. So, um, I guess. Yeah, it's time to learn about your didbetter.rip and do better. Yeah, so I'm going to start these because they're related to um, development stuff. Ooh. So, actually, I'll, I'll 
quickly ripped through, did better. Screen time uh, wasn't as bad as I expected. It was pretty reasonable. Uh, the average wound up being around like nine hours um, for a day. And considering that my full-time job is on my laptop, I was like, that's fine. I'm yeah. cool with that. Uh, so that was good. I'm going to keep uh, an eye on screen time day to day. But I, it was more or less just like a one-week check-in and just see like without intending to change behavior, do I find out that I'm using it uh, 14 hours a day or whatever? And it turns out I'm not. The funny thing was though, because I used this application Amphetamine to keep my computer on, uh, like my screen from going to sleep, if you don't disable the session, when you close your screen, it's still considered screen time on. So oh, wow. I disabled Amphetamine this past week and as a result, uh, my computer was like, you decreased your screen time by 57% since last week. I'm like, ah, I don't think that's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, anyway, that's that's a, that was a good finding. I don't really have anything else to mention as far as uh, did beggars. It was mostly just like my first week back uh, after visiting family. So didn't work on the interpreter. Uh, didn't go to the Taekwondo Club. Honestly, at this point, it's almost Christmas time. I don't know if I'm even <laughs> going to get to it. I'm kind of writing that one off. Maybe I'll look at it in the new year. I don't really know. I feel like I have enough going on uh, as of late. Like I'm not too concerned. And I get ready for uh, Mexico and such. Woo! But for um, do-beggars, uh, the most important one is I want to start looking at, this is di directly related to my day-to-day -day work, looking at um, SQL profiling and debugging mm. and specifically I need to learn more about SQL alchemy and memory related problems so we have without going into too much detail uh, we have some fundamental implementation issues in the application that I work on where the way that things are done doesn't seem to scale very well. Uh, so it'll work in almost all cases, but if we have one particularly large user, or we have two currently, it becomes a fundamentally different set of problems uh, where either we need a different, a different implementation entirely, or we need to reconsider our implementation across all users because uh, we'll go from, for example, a data loading or processing job that takes a few seconds for every other user, takes 94 minutes for one of our bigger users. And that's not a scalable solution because it seems to be related strictly to how large the organization is with respect to basically how many rows in our database they contain. Wow. Uh, so that's going to be a problem. with, And so I don't have a lot of existing experience with like, SQL profiling and finding out, okay, this one takes a long time, but should it, uh, like this query, um, this query is being run a bunch. Is that a problem or is that expected? Is this an optimized query that runs more often in smaller bits and someone's already thought about this? Uh, and then we're using SQL Alchemy as our ORM. I already presumably fixed one of the memory issues by just committing the session more often. We had like this for loop that churned through a bunch of stuff, added upserts to the session, and then after the for loop committed the session, which worked for, again, the smaller users, but then we had one that would just bloat the memory 
up to, it would run for about an hour and a half and it would bloat the memory up to like nine gigs and then just crash. And instead I just committed the session more often and uh, it wound up just sitting flat at like around 500 megabytes. Uh, So it's like, these are things that no one's taken the time to look through because they weren't a problem and now they are a problem. And unfortunately, this means that I have to try to get up to speed on our application code, our ORM, and rule out the combination. It's a combination of things. Basically, the, the issue is someone goes to the website and it doesn't load. Oh. And they say, Nathan, why doesn't it load? And it's like, okay, well, it could be any number of things. Yeah. Uh, and so I think my biggest, um, weakness in knowledge and my ability to help solve these problems right now is at the, uh, ORM level specifically, but more generally the database query level. So yeah, basically I need to look at that because we've got a lot of issues with things that should be able to, or that need to be able to scale just uh, having really bad memory and uh, time complexity, I guess. Uh, but their footprint, practically speaking, with memory is enormous, and their time seems to be at least linear, if not exponential of some sort. So I need to fix that, and I think a lot of it's going to be related to SQL profiling and just learning more about how the ORM behaves. But the one thing that I did fix was simply I pulled up the docs on like SQL Alchemy sessions, and it says, commit flushes the current session of everything stored in memory. And I was like, oh, stored in memory. That's a problem I'm having. Let me try committing. And I asked the team, anybody see why this would be a problem? Like what's the trade-off here as far as database commits versus uh, memory bloat? And they said, go for it. And I was like, all right, cool. (laughs) And it worked. So the problem is we have a lot of those in our application. So it's going to be a matter of making it more mature. The fun part though, is that today for the first time, people started asking, uh, the VP of engineering brought it up, but people started talking more generally uh, about is Python even the right language for this stuff? So we t- it, was a co- it was a combined discussion about like, we should be bringing more things to the database level because we're loading a ton of stuff into Python and then processing it and then writing it. And it's like, most of this can just happen at the database level. That's what, that's what Postgres is good for. Yeah. Let it do the queries. It is smarter than you. Uh, so there's a lot of that. We're trying to bring it to the database level. We're also using Snowflake, or I should say we're moving to Snowflake, but we're not there yet. So that might help with a lot of these larger issues as well. But we have to get things to the database level first because pulling from Py- pulling from Postgres or pulling from Snowflake and then churning it in Python is not going to be any better. Uh, but that meant that people were starting to talk about Go and things as faster languages, which means... We've reached the point when we're a, a maturing company because wow. every startup I've worked at has gone from either Python or Ruby to the point where they need to start building things in Go. They're like, oh, oh performance bottlenecks, that language we chose is no longer good enough. We need to go, we need to go burr. need to go go. Yeah, so you need to go to go. Uh, and I consider that to be a good sign at least. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking of an idea I don't know if I'll write this as a blog post, but I'm still trying to like brainstorm dev blog post ideas. One of them I thought of was like, uh, you know, should you learn that next programming language and basically targeting a few different people of like your first language, uh, your second language or languages beyond that and being like, hey, you know, if you already know 
JavaScript and Ruby? Do you really need to learn Python? Like maybe learn it on the job. And uh, if you already if you already know uh, I don't know Java and C, it's like okay, well maybe maybe like a totally different language, maybe not Go because it's going to be a lot like Java. It's like just you've got your types, you've got your structs, you don't really need to think. To, maybe try like a totally different language. Rust. Try Rust if you're uh, <clears throat> if you're hurting for it. Yeah. As someone said last week. <laughs> so anyway, I thought about something like that, but those are my do beggars. I'm not doing. I'm not committing too much to anything, uh, like a broad list of things. It's more so, I uh, want to work on my compiler because I'm curious about it, but I haven't been putting time into it, and uh, need to level up on my database knowledge, and ORM knowledge, which are related. Yeah, sounds like instead of committing to a whole bunch of things at once, it's causing your memory to bloat. So it'd be nice to commit more often to smaller things. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. Well said. I learned. I learned. Uh huh. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, NWCaloring.dev. Tell your friends. That's where the blog post will be. Yeah. Hosting on Gatsby. Super speedy. Or I shouldn't say hosting on. Hosting on S3. Built with Gatsby. Super speedy. Yeah. Blazingly fast. As, as and, the kids would say. Yeah. And cloud front in there. So you could be sitting in Bahamas and you'd get fast loaded. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sam Bankman Freed, he's pulling up the Do Better or the uh, Do Better Dev Show and nwcalvank.dev, and it's super fast. Super fast. Or I've forgotten the domain for my personal website, but that's also super fast. Dang. That's whatever that Go language based is. That's Hugo. Awesome. Hugo, yeah. Huge, huge and fast and static. It's good. <laughs> As all it's things should good. be. As all things should be. Yeah. Uh, all right, on my did betters, I took a page straight out of your last week's did betters. Okay. And I also wanted to reduce my screen time because apparently then the last podcast I had like a five minute introspection moment of, <laughs> man, nothing, nothing seems to be working. I just, I just keep picking up my phone. What am I doing? <laughs> uh, and that helped a lot because apparently just verbaling it out loud. Uh, my screen time is now 30 minutes on average of every day as opposed to multiple hours. Whoa, that's huge. I know. Uh, it's crazy. And a lot of that is just Duolingo. Uh, so what I've started doing better on is now instead of twice, once a day, where I would like 11.59, like, ah, ah, like the street. <laughs> uh, now I'm doing my twice a day that Duo rewards you for when you do it in the first six hours, last six hours of the day. Uh, by giving you a two x bonus boost, huh. uh, and uh, it's it's helpful. And I at this point I've just given into the new UI. I'm mm -hmm. like, all right, I can't fight against it. It's okay. That's just life. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, because they don't award you as many points anymore, if you do want to be in the top five or whatever, you have to do at least five lessons a day. Uh, so I don't know how I'm gonna build up to that. Maybe that'll take a lot more screen time. Uh, but it's good to know that like that's one of the top apps or if I video call home which ends up being like an hour or two long call that's my like top screen time and not um, Instagram again mm -hmm. uh, even I think yesterday or this morning probably this morning I think uh, I finished some big task I laid on my bed and I scrolled on Instagram and after like three videos I was like I should just go eat and I, I realize that's a dangerous road to go down on because that's how I replace every problem. Uh, but right now, I don't care uh, because it's winterous and I can put on some warm warmth. Uh -huh. uh, it's, it's a nice way of calling it back. Um, yeah, and I was able to do more quiet sitting. So now instead of the tra on trains and stuff, 
Um, the good thing about podcasts is they're not like blaring music. So even if I'm listening to them or I'm like, you know what, train's kind of loud. I don't really feel like putting more noise in my ears. I'll just sit in silence or whatever silence I can have. Uh, and that felt good. That felt like, okay, I'm back to my semi-regular stoic roots uh, and life seems a lot more manageable when you're that way and you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. It's mm-hmm. all whatever. And <laughs> I'm liking that because in a week I'm flying away. Wow. Stoked. Stoked because all the roads are smushed now and I'm worried about my flight from Seattle. So I'm just going to go there a day before, stay there. Uh, and uh, just giving myself like a solid 24-hour buffer time for any border problems from Canada to US. Um, yeah, and then for my do-betters, the only thing I have now, uh, I was preparing for the interviews, going through interviews with the company and stuff. Their interview loop is finished. Okay. I don't know how they felt about me. I'll find out in a few days. They said by early, by early next week, they'll let me know. Apparently, they must be interviewing other people. Oh. Uh, <laughs> rude. Rude, yeah. If it's just me, give me all the attention. Uh, same thing with dating. You can't date multiple people and call it effective. Uh, jobs. Anyways, yeah. So because of that, I am at a point where I've looked up some things. I My job has given me slightly more freedom to investigate more things. And because I'm traveling, I'm not going to invest the time into the certification, but I'm going to invest it in looking up certain things. Uh, but my personal time, I'm just going to spend it a lot more doing personal things. And one of the things now I have to look into is home workouts. I haven't done any home workouts in forever, uh-huh. but because I'll be traveling, I'm not going to get much of um, um, gyms. So what I'm thinking is I have to look up and try to create a plan that's more based around joints. Maybe it's time to like strengthen my joints because uh, you can do that a lot effectively with just holding positions uh, on whatever bodyweight workouts. And maybe when I come back, my I'll be able to bench double plates. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, it'll go from whatever 15s or 20s that it's now with my injury <laughs> to double plates like that. Uh, and I can't even go and you go to UK and say I did 225 because they'll think it's KG and they'll call me a liar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah, so yeah, I have to look that up because I haven't done any in a while. And my usual home workouts is Oculus Quest VR. Uh, and I can't travel with that (laughs) so yeah so I'm gonna look those up figure out a plan I create some sort of structure around it because I don't want to exceed like more than half hour an hour a day doing that if I'm traveling but I also don't want to go away for like 40 days and get extremely fat and not like myself right so yeah I'm gonna gonna look into that that's my only do better for continue doing the thing that I have done good on right now is Keep the screen time down, uh-huh. do more stoic thing, and my lovely girlfriend has very generously offered and joined me into a two meditation a day sort of thing. Wow. So now it's a shared goal. So in the morning, when we wake up, we're going to do the meditations together, and then before bed. Uh, so hopefully keeps us both accountable. Nice. Uh, and uh, I think our gym times are still going to be separate or whatever, but if it's home workouts, maybe we could sync that up as well. But think Is- of that. Is this our last recording then, before you go? For a little while, yeah. Oh uh, my goodness. There is a possibility that I will get hella bored in yeah. the UK and call you and be like, can we talk? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and do this. Uh, but depending on the latency there. Yeah, uh, it should be fine. should be fine. Clean feed. Clean feed's got it, got it all. 
Sure. Uh, yeah, they must be using some servers because you can have guests on the thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you could do that. Uh, but yeah, for the for potentially for now, um, hold on to your butts, y'all. Just listen to our previous episodes throughout Christmas, New Year's. Ignore your family. Learn about chaos testing, and we'll find you in the new year if we don't otherwise. Yeah, some point in the future. We'll see you then. Yeah. Bye bye. In the future. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>